Let me go from that hymn and read to you these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we sang those words from William Cowper as he talked about delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're considering why so much confusion. And let's go back to Job 32 and remind ourselves for a couple of minutes about Elihu. Since a couple of young men in the assembly were provoked by him, and since some comments were made about him, let's remind ourselves of this chapter. Learning is by repetition. There's... 1,189 chapters in our Bible, and this is one of the great ones. Job 32, and I just want to encourage some of you young men. Verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Godly men get angry, but godly men get angry against error. Godly men don't get angry against truth, and godly men don't get angry against those who hold the truth. They get angry against men who are holding error. Now, Elihu, it goes on to explain that he was a young man, so he waited And while he's sitting there, he starts to boil, listening to the exchanges back and forth, the argumentation and the rebuttals. And he says in verse 7, I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. You old men should have been able to figure things out. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I gave ear to your reasons, whilst ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job, or that answered his words. Lest ye should say, we have found out wisdom. God thrusteth him down, not man." Now he hath not directed his words against me, neither will I answer him with your speeches. This is commentary by Elihu. The next words are not spoken by Elihu, it's commentary. And it's precious. Amen. They were amazed. This is narrative. This is Elihu narrating what's going on because Elihu is the author of the book of Job, proven by this right here. They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not but stood still and answered no more, I said, I will answer also my part. 
I also will show mine opinion. You want to pick up a New King James Bible? Do you know what a New King James Bible does? It takes verses 15 and 16 and puts it in quotation marks. As if Elihu is still speaking to the four men. You want to hear something ridiculous? Watch this. Pretend that he's still saying these things. Verse 14 is Elihu speaking. 15 and 16 are narrative. This is a side, this is a rabbit trail. Let's shoot that rabbit. This is ridiculous. Watch. Now he hath not directed his words against me. He is speaking to the three men. Job didn't address me with his words. Neither will I answer him with your speeches. He's speaking to the crowd that's gathered there, the four people. They were amazed. Who's he talking about? That can't be Elihu's words. That's Elihu's narrative. But if you pick up a modern Bible where it wants to put everything that is spoken in quotation marks, verses 15 and 16 are in quotation marks. But they're not spoken by Elihu. They're Elihu's narrative about this event here. Now you may not, that is precious. You can just take a New King James Bible, look at it and say, who in the world signed off on this thing? Was this a third grade teacher that signed off on this book? That's narrative. And it tells you who wrote the book of Job. Elihu. Because he's the one that's able to give the narrative and then say about himself in the first person, I said. You know, the rest is Job said. Bildad said. Let's get back to the point. Oh, Elihu. Young men, Adam, Stephen, and the rest of you, I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion, for I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. Do you know how a young man gets full of matter so that he has lots to talk about? He reads the Bible every day, and he reads the Bible a lot. In Psalm 119, David said, Because I meditate on thy word, I have things to say before kings. And I will not be ashamed. Do you know how you get yourself full of matter and full of things to talk about? Read the Word of God. It will fill you with that matter. And, and Elihu was full of matter. Behold, verse 19, Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. I'm going to blow off some steam. I'm going to blow off some steam for the God of heaven since the four of you were sitting in judgment on him and on Job. You couldn't figure out what was going on. But now I want to add one more thing about Elihu. This is his attitude toward life. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto men. Doctor so-and-so. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my maker would soon take me away. This is Elihu. If I were to give flattering titles to men, Dr. So-and-so, if I were to go around and use titles that Jesus Christ forbids in Matthew chapter 23, if I were to do that, my maker would soon take me away. I don't give flattering titles, and I'm not moved by them, because I have no respect for any man's person. Wow. That's a tough little guy. We don't know if he was little. It's a tough young guy. That's a great young man. All you young men, be like Elihu. And you can go on and read the next few chapters. He just unloads. You want the answer to the whole book of Job? It's in five words. 
And it's in verse 12 of the next chapter. Job 33 and verse 12. The whole answer is five words long. And he just he's explained, working his way down to verse 12 of chapter 33, he's explained that they were wrong. Verse 12, Behold, in this thou art not just, I will answer thee, that God is greater than man. God can do whatever He wants to to you, Job, and you should just keep worshiping Him like you did in chapter 1, instead of sitting in judgment on Him and telling Him to come down, that you want to talk to Him about Him treating you unfairly. And Elihu's going to go on and say, Job, you better get over this attitude really quick, because He was just trying you. But if you continue in this course... He's going to kill you. Anyways, look, turn over to Psalm 119 that was also mentioned. You want to get some matter in you? Then get Psalm 119 in you. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 97. Hebrew section Mem. What does that mean? It's one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. This particular 176 verses was broken up into 22 sections of 8 verses, with each verse in each section starting with that Hebrew letter. doesn't mean a thing to you, English readers. <laughs> but you might as well know it. I don't know. I like the English myself. <laughs> Look at these 8 verses. 97. Oh, how love I thy law. It has to be read that way because it's got an exclamation point. Right. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. For they are ever with me. That is, God's commandments are ever with him. David always had God's word with him, which made him wiser than his enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For thy testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. God's word made David wiser than his enemies, his teachers, and the ancients. Verse 101, I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Is that your attitude about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we looked at at length in the first assembly? Do you love it? Do you get understanding? And do you hate every false way? Would we separate from a brother that wanted to take a stand against us in the first three verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Amen and amen. Easily. If you can't figure it out, then keep your mouth shut. If you're so simple... And brainwashed and blinded already. That you can't figure out Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And you think it means something. Then just keep your mouth shut. Because we don't want to hear about it. And we'll labor along with you as long as we can. As long as you keep your mouth shut. You want to be seditious about it. You can walk. Because we are not interested. We hate every false way. And if we don't hate every false way. Then we're not like David. Right. If you want to be like David. You've got to hate every false way. And you've got to love God's law. Why is this important? There's a sovereign God in heaven that reveals truth to some and deceives others. That's why it's important. And I want you to know that sovereign God, and I want to know that sovereign God. And I want to defend that sovereign God, and I want to exalt that sovereign God. 
Why is this study important? Because there's a sovereign God that reveals truth to some and deceives others. Why is it important? Because it boosts the value of every jot and tittle of truth to be very precious. The Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word in Job 32 is precious. Every word in Psalm 119, 97 through 104 is precious. Every jot and tittle of the Bible should be precious to you. And that's why this study is important and valuable. Do you appreciate every jot and tittle? The Lord Jesus Christ said, if a man teaches you to break even the smallest of the commandments, he shall be smallest in the kingdom of heaven. Even the small things of God's word are important. We want to enjoy every single thing that God's revealed to us from his word. It crushes the popular ideas of God and scripture that are taught elsewhere. That God wants everyone to know the truth and the Bible is written for children to understand. You know why it's, it's not? The only, it can only come up with one verse. If you ask the average Christian today, what verses do you know from memory? They've only got one. It's John 3.16. That's only one out of 31,101. They can't even figure that out. The one they've spent the most time on, they're totally confused about. God doesn't love all men without exception. He loves all kinds of men without distinction. He loves His elect that He put in Christ Jesus before the world began. They can't even figure out the verse. They want to hold up on placards and end zones of NFL stadiums. There's no magic in that verse. There's wisdom to Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, that the salvation of God extended far beyond their borders to the whole world. Because God had His elect among all nations. They can't even figure out that verse. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. This, is, this, is stu- this, this study is important to us because it crushes the popular ideas of God in Scripture. God, by His mercy, has shown us Himself through the Bible that He is a God that judges some by blinding them and blesses others by showing them the truth. This study is important because it humbles the most intelligent and intellectual that can be among us or the most intelligent or intellectual we would ever feel about ourselves. When we come to this book, it crushes us right down into the dust. It puts us where we belong. We cannot figure it out without God revealing it to us. This is not like taking the next chapter in math or the next chapter in JavaScript or the next chapter in mechanical engineering. All you got to do is read through it a few times, depending on how bright you are, and you can figure it out. You can do the questions at the end, look at the, look at the answers in the student's guide, and find out that you got them all right, and the ones you got wrong, you can figure out what you did wrong in the process. This book isn't like that. It humbles men. Some of the greatest minds in the world that have applied themselves this book have ended up in horrible heresies. It explains and comforts that only a small minority will have the truth. That's comforting. That's precious. You know, God's love, God's love is valued by the degree it's shown to men and by the power of what it accomplishes. And when we see God's love very narrow in its focus, but very complete in its accomplishment, wow, the Lord, we are bound to thank you. We are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. God has loved you so much, He chose you to salvation in the beginning, and He gave you the truth. Amen. It adds excitement to Bible study for God to reveal secret wisdom. 
Do you know the Bible's full of secret wisdom that the world has not known and cannot know? Do you know what 1 Corinthians 2 is written for? It's not written to prove the doctrine of total depravity. That is a secondary use of 1 Corinthians 2 that we use it for. 1 Corinthians 2 is written to tell you that if the princes of this world had been smart enough to figure out that Jesus of Nazareth on trial before them was the Son of God, they would not have touched the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. 1 Corinthians 2 is about the hidden mysteries of God's wisdom revealed to His saints, which we cannot figure out except by the Spirit of God, the only one in the universe that truly knows God, that reveals Him to us. For the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. That's when it goes on and uses verse 14. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Oh, there's a, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. Right. The hidden wisdom of God revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one else can know it. No one else will know it. They think it's foolishness. As God reveals the secrets and the facts of the universe to us. Amen. Things past, things present, things future. Things seen, things unseen. Concepts and persons. Jesus and redemption. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You and me, brethren. And do you know what he just described us as in the chapter before that? Base, foolish, poor, despised, and nothing. So that he might bring to nothing them that think they are something. It warns against playing with God's religion for the dire consequences. It exalts Jehovah who is known for mind control, good and bad. It should scare every idol out of your heart. I'm thankful that I was able to use Ezekiel 14 with you last Sunday, where it says if a man has an idol in his heart and he comes to the Word of God, he comes to a prophet of God, he comes to God, God sees that idol there, and God has already purposed that he's going to deceive that man. He's going to deceive the prophet that gives him the answer. He's going to write the Bible in a hard way to mess a man up. He's going to deceive that man so that he can destroy both because he came with an idol in his heart. This study is important because it exalts hard verses as God's rope by which men hang themselves. When you find a hard verse, don't despair. Drop to your knees and ask God for wisdom and tell Him that you love Him for being able to write a verse because you know of some denomination that hangs themselves with that verse. It shows the greatest facts in the universe are mysteries given to us. It crushes man's rights into nothing and exalts God's rights over us. I want to lift God as high as I can and put man down as far as he can so that you can fulfill Psalm 4.4. Stand in awe and sin not. And this lifts God up because he's able to blind men, even his own children, from seeing and understanding the truth. It exalts the Bible as the most incredible supernatural book of all. It proves God's love to us more than anything but Jesus dying for us. That He would open our eyes to see the truth in our hearts to love it. It destroys the idea of evangelism that methods affect conversion. It shows that God has to open Lydia's heart. It didn't matter how eloquent or persuasive or powerful Paul and Luke were in the city of Philippi. The Lord had to open her heart. It didn't even matter that she already worshipped God with her house. He had to open her heart. And so it takes away all that delusion that if I just had a better presentation, maybe if I got a hell's angel to get converted 
and come and tell these young people that he was a hell's angel and now he loves Jesus, that they would all love Jesus. Well, a man tried that one time in Luke 16. It was a man in hell. See, he wasn't a hell's angel. He was a hell's occupant. He was a hell's customer. He was a hell's client. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, I've got five brothers. I don't want them to come to this place. Why don't you let Lazarus come back from the dead? And if they were to see a man come back from the dead, they wouldn't come here. And Abraham said, rich man, don't your brothers go to church every Sabbath day? Don't they hear the scriptures read? They've got Moses. They've got Moses. They've got the Bible. The Bible tells them how not to come here. Um, yeah, I know Father Abraham, but they don't really get into preaching. If one came back from the dead, that would really help them get over the hump. Abraham said it wouldn't matter if one came back from the dead. If, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't hear if one came back from the dead. Do you believe that's the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the Lord Jesus Christ teaching that evangelistic methods do not work, that he must open the heart, open the mind, open the ears, open the eyes for a man to see, hear, understand, perceive, and want to believe and love the truth and obey it. Precious. This is why the study is important. It proves that God can move you, that God can move your benefactors, and that God can move your enemies in your favor or in your punishment. God can move you to number Israel. And God can move you to make a temple that's exceeding magnifical. Right. Same man. Once you see that God is in the business of mind control and revealing things and hiding things, it's of great comfort. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. When God's market survey revealed what men wanted to see and hear, He sent them something foolish and offensive. I praise God for that. Amen. 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 When they don't want to approach Him His way, when they want to worship idols, when they want something that's frivolous and foolish, that's human and natural, when He offers them something spiritual, precious and real, then He'll confuse them. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13. Sanctify the Lord God of hosts Himself. Do you know what? What does that mean to you? Set God apart and make Him holy and the most exalted thing in your life. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. That's what it means. Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself. Make God Himself the object of your love and the most important thing in your life. And let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. This is how we preach about worshiping God. Hebrews 12.28 says that we are to worship Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Isaiah 8.13 describes that as let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. Humble yourself before God and get Him up high and holy and terrible and get yourself down and worthy of His judgment lest you be punished. Here's the destruction and the punishment. And He shall be for a sanctuary. If you'll lift God up, He'll be your sanctuary. He'll be where you can hide. But... For those that don't want to do that, for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. 
Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. It's only for those that want to believe it and obey it. The rest of them can fall, be trapped, be broken, ensnared, tied down in bondage, destroyed and ruined. Make the Lord your sanctuary. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Then God, this God that I'm describing is your hiding place. But if you approach Him foolishly and if you love the things of this world, He'll break you. I guess we could just sing a verse of put your hand in the hand of the man after a verse like that, couldn't we? Put, don't, don't, you don't want me to start it. Put your hand in the hand of the man. No, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Amen. I'm glad that there's a few smiles of somebody as old as I am to remember that stupid song. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be a sanctuary for you, a hiding place. But to the rest, terrible. Let's go over and see this found in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Lord, help us to read your word distinctly and to give the sense and cause us all to understand the reading that we may humble ourselves before you and that we may approach you with fear and dread and in you find our sanctuary, our pavilion, where you will take us and hide us in your secret place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. This is God's judgment on how you receive His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given a record of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you'll receive that record, you'll not be confounded. And the more you receive that record, the less you'll be confounded, the more truth He'll show to you. But if you want to fight against Him, and if you want to disannul that stone, the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the nation of Israel, they didn't want their kingdom to be built on that stone. So it ground them to powder. But those that fell on him, he was precious indeed. But those that he fell on, they had been appointed to it. Under God's judgment for their disobedience against him. When God takes a market survey and sees what men wants to see, he sends something foolish and offensive. So that we'll believe it by true faith. And not by any personal advantage that we would get. Not by any foolish imagination that we might have. The Jews wanted a deliverer. They wanted a second David that would deliver them from the hands of Rome. The Lord Jesus Christ sent them a Savior, and they despised Him. And look at what happened. He ground that nation to powder. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. God doesn't adjust to men. God expects us to adjust to Him. If you don't like worshiping Him His way, we'll see who laughs last and best as we turn to Proverbs chapter 1.
verse 24. It's longer than the passage is longer, but let's start at 24. Proverbs 1, 24. This is God through wisdom addressing you and me. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have set it not all my counsel and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. This is the warning of God's word, and it tells us to take his word and his offers of wisdom and truth and righteousness very seriously. Do not neglect them, do not despise them, do not reject them. Don't turn me off and daydream. It's not me that's speaking, it's the word of God that's speaking to you. These are God's words, this is God's warning. Humble yourself before. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will mock when your fear cometh and your fear is coming. I don't care how comfortable and secure you may be right now. He always lets his enemies feel comfortable and secure. Pharaoh was comfortable and secure. Do you know what kind of a bed he was sleeping in the night that his firstborn was killed? He was very comfortable and very secure. And then the Lord took him away. Look at Matthew 15. I'm multiplying verses upon verses to let the Word of God speak to you and tell you what kind of a God that we deal with and that truth is a great blessing from Him and every bit of truth that He gives us. We should love it, study it, learn it, hold it, defend it. Most of all, obey it. Matthew 15. Verse 10, and he called the multitude and said unto them, hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Because the first nine verses of this chapter are rebuking a doctrine of the Pharisees. And so the apostles come to Jesus and they say, don't you know that that was a hard saying that you offended them? Now what's the average idea of Jesus today? That Jesus would get all apologetic and chase these guys down and say, I didn't mean it that way. Hey, I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for hurting your feelings. I'm sorry for offending you. I go through this because I want you to know how most every other Christian thinks about the Lord Jesus Christ, and about the God of the Bible. We're studying this subject so that we will get a proper perspective of God and a proper appreciation for the truth He shows us, because this is what He said. He answered and said, verse 13, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. Sometimes you, and sometimes others, Write me, call me, ask me. Why do you ignore them? Because they don't deserve the time of day. I want to help those who want to help themselves toward the kingdom of heaven. 
Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Where they all belong. In the ditch. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Bible. This is not our church's opinion. This is not your pastor's opinion. This is the Word of God. You don't need an explanation of these verses. You understand them. Jesus was hard toward them that wanted to set up man-made religion and reject Him and the truth of the Scriptures. Every plant which my Heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. There's wheat and there's tares and they look alike. But you can tell one thing. You want wheat that loves the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Loves the Word of God. Loves the people of God. Loves the worship of God. And you know you've got wheat, or you, you can presume that you've got wheat, and you serve them. You allocate your labors. And that's what Jesus told His apostles. Let them alone. I'm not going to go apologize to them, and we're not going to water down the point I just made. Right. What I just said is the truth. And then Peter understood that, and so he says, would you explain it a little bit more fully to us in the, in the next verses? Our Jesus explanation that eating off a dish that hadn't been washed and wasn't kosher. Okay? Eating off a plate that wasn't kosher was not going to defile a man. Because it's not what went in that defiles a man, because whatever goes in, goes into the draft. That's the sewer. But it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. Right. And that was rough to talk that way to Dr. So-and-so from the Pharisee Seminary. No, we don't care. We don't give flattering titles to men. Brethren, God judges men by confusing them, and you better know that. And when you wonder about friends that you had, friends that we may have right now sitting among us, we sit here, same Bible, same songs, same service, some are going to leave us. Bye-bye. He blinds, and He'll blind us. And you will never know except that you're leaving for good and sound reasons. Because that's what blinding is. Blinding is deception. So that you think you're right while you're wrong. It's believing a lie and thinking it's the truth. It's thinking that dark is light and black is white when we all can see and know the difference because of God's Word and the light that it shines upon your life and upon mine. It happens. And so we want to give our attention to God's Word because He judges. And what we want to learn is that God is serious about the truth that He offers men. God judges men by confusing them. And I showed you some verses last Lord's Day where He gloried in that fact. Especially in the book of Job, which is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then chapter 3. But look at Exodus chapter 4. I want to show you that God judges men. God should judge all men. Then He would be fair. Then he would just be strictly righteous. But because he's merciful, he's designed a way that he can show mercy to some of us by putting us in Jesus Christ before the world began. There he can love us. There he can show truth to truth haters. Exodus chapter 4, let's remind ourselves about Pharaoh. Way before. Moses gets to Pharaoh the Lord told him what was going to happen. Verse 19, the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, he's been 40 years away from Egypt, he's about to go back. But I want you to know where these words came. 
Verse 21, the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, not there yet, when thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. God's choice to judge the nation of Egypt for the benefit of the nation of Israel. Egypt was greater and mightier and more numerous. They were the majority. Israel was weak, poverty-stricken, slaves, and they were the minority. But God chose the one to have truth revealed to it and a deliverer named Moses. And God chose to judge the other. I will harden his heart. He shall not let the people go, even with the signs and wonders that I've just shown you that shocked you, Moses. You were shocked by a burning bush that was not consumed. You were scared by a serpent that was created out of your staff when you threw it on the ground. You were appalled at the leprosy I put on your hand just by pulling it out of your coat. But I will show all those wonders to Pharaoh and it will not make any difference because I will harden his heart. You say, well, why did God want to do that to them? The Bible tells us to get himself a name. So he picked the biggest dude on planet earth and crushed him and drowned him and robbed him before he did that in the Red Sea. This is the God of the Bible. That is Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16 and it's Romans chapter 9 and verse 16. Both Testaments tell us the same thing. God raised up Pharaoh for one purpose, to get himself a name. To get God a name. To get him glory. And if you rebel against God, he'll get himself a name in your life. He'll ruin your life for the glory of his own. I think that's fair. And I love worshiping a God like this. I love praying to a God like this. I love reading a Bible about a God like this. This is a God fit for men. Instead of an effeminate version of them. Look at Exodus 9. Let me read it to you. I'm sorry for sometimes referring to verses, thinking that you know them. Uh, this is Exodus 9.16, and Paul quotes it in Romans 9.16. That should help you remember it. It's 9.16 about Pharaoh. Exodus 9.16. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up. For to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. We are still declaring the name of Jehovah. Who took the president of Egypt, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt, punished him with ten plagues, killed his oldest son, got him into the middle of the Red Sea, took the wheels off his chariot, then... Finally, he got to drown. That's the God of the Bible. If God ever says to you, I want you to do this, through preaching, through the Word of God, through conviction by the Holy Spirit, I want you to do this, and you say, in some way, shape, or form, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Do you know what his famous last words were? Who is the Lord? You can say, Who is the church of Greenville? Because we're nothing. We're scum. But He's given us some truth. What's so big about the King James Bible? There's a whole lot of other ones. It's God's Word. And you better treat it with care. Because He'll get Himself a name. 
He'll get himself a name. Look at 14.4. Do you know of anybody that's made it through the third grade? That if a man had stood in front of them and told them, you won't do what my God said to do, I'm going to bring this plague on you. And the plague came. Then when, when your friend that got through the third grade told the person, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That that man said, okay, I'll pray to my God and he will lift that plague. And that happened ten times. Would your third grade graduate get the idea that maybe you ought to be careful dealing with this man named Moses and his God? Would your third grader be able to figure that out? Amen. Come on. When you were in the third grade, were you smart enough to figure something like that out? If you went out in the playground and a bully punched you in the nose and it bled ten times in a row, did you go out and run from the bully or what? Did you learn anything? Why didn't Pharaoh learn? Why did he sit in his chariot and hold those reins, looking around at his big fancy army? And there's Moses up there with his rod lifted up and the Israelites running through on dry ground. Why did Pharaoh think that he could go down into the middle of that Red Sea with that water heaped up on both sides and get to the other side of the Red Sea? Why did he think that? Because your third grade friend wouldn't have done it. And the horses wouldn't have done it without whips. I'll tell you why. Verse 4. Now let's get verse 3. The Lord's explaining what's about to happen to Moses. Moses will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. They're all lost out there and confused. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And do you know what Exodus 15 is in your Bible for? Because the young ladies, the young ladies who are God-fearers like doctrine like this. Do you know what the young ladies in Israel did in in Exodus chapter 15? They danced. They pulled out their timbrels and they started a dance to worship God for the waterlogged bodies that were floating up on shore. And I've explained to you how an iron, how a, uh, how an armor clad soldier gets up on shore because he's peeling that stuff off as fast as he can while he's sinking to the bottom of the Red Sea. The Bible says they floated up on shore and they had a dance. Now, do you young ladies have the character of a godly woman and you feel like dancing when you read Exodus 14 and 15? We have a great God Amen. and a great king that says, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? He deserves to drown in the Red Sea after being punished ten times with a bloody nose. But why didn't he catch on? The, point, the whole point I'm making is why didn't Pharaoh catch on? Because God blinded him. And why won't you catch on? Because God does this to us. And we can't see and we grope in the darkness. Those are God's words. We grope in the darkness. I love the Lord. God's in the business of mind control. And with this we'll close. We need mind control in our nation to save us from those that hate us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 2. Our God's in the business of mind control and you want to humble yourself before Him so that He can control your mind for good. Did David say, make me go in the way of Thy commandments? Did David say, incline my heart away from covetousness toward Thy precepts? Can the Lord do that? Will He 
Will he always override you and make you into a fatalistic puppet? No. He wants to see your desire for him. And if you're making a prayer like that, then he'll give you the push that you need to be able to do it. Because look at David's making the prayer. When a man gets, when man gets help from God after he's made that prayer, then is he just a puppet? No. He was an actor in the scheme. He made the choice. God, God enabled him with the effort. How does God ever get us started? He makes the choice and changes our heart. But then what do we do with that heart? You say, I can't keep the two straight. Are you sure we're not getting confused about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Here's how I'll answer it. I am what I am by the grace of God. But the grace of God that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, that's how Paul described it. I am what I am by the grace of God. But the grace that was given to me by God, I didn't waste it. I labored more abundantly than any other apostle. Yet it wasn't really me, because it was God that chose to really use me. And what I am, I am by the grace of God. We're nothing. But the Lord has shown us some grace. Deuteronomy 2.30 The children of Israel are making their way toward Canaan. Deuteronomy 2.30, and here's a description of their event, their history. Sihon, Deuteronomy 2.30. Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. A second king, Sihon, named right here in this verse. He opens up his paper, and he has his war council of spies. They have watched Israel come out of Egypt, and the entire Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. If you were Sihon and your war council, and Israel asked for permission to pass through your land, what would you do? You're Sihon. You have a war council. Israel's coming towards you, and they ask politely for passage. I'd be getting them box lunches. I'd be getting them box lunches, buying them pizza, doing whatever I could, giving their, ki- giving their kitties Nintendo games to play on the march, anything. But what did Sihon do? The Lord hardened his heart and made him obstinate. You know what's going to happen to you in your lifetime? You're going to meet people that the Lord hardens their heart and makes them obstinate. They tell us they love us. They tell us they love God's Word. They tell us they love the worship of God. It'll harden their heart and make them obstinate. Do you know what? You ever been obstinate in your life? Oh, I've been obstinate many times. So the Lord hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might destroy him. So he couldn't figure out Pharaoh's army was 20 times bigger than mine, 40 times better trained, and they had chariots. And I don't. I'm going to fight them. Yes. We're, we're, the, we're the Amorites. We're going to fight them. We're from Heshbon. Ra, ra, ra. Israel smashed them. Right. Look at Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. You say, you're making God out to be so cruel. Listen, when men want to worship totem poles and sacrifice children, and call it a God, 
and will not look up at the heavens and realize there must be someone bigger than my goldsmith. My goldsmith made me my little god of St. Christopher that I put on my dash to keep me safe in my car. And he doesn't look up and realize there's got to be someone bigger than my goldsmith. Because the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And these people rejected that glory and this is what happened to them. And God loved his people. God loved Israel and hated the rest. You don't like it? He should have hated us all. But because he's better than that, he loved his elect. This is Joshua on the other side of the Jordan River in the land of Canaan. And we have a similar description as to why all those nations would not think in their war councils what happened to everyone that has taken Israel on in battle. That's why we want to pray for wisdom for our leaders. Joshua 11.20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that He might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that He might destroy them, as the Lord commanded Moses. If they would have held up the white flag, Israel would have felt sorry for them. It is hard. It is hard to take a sword and to cut a man's head off when he's on his knees begging you for mercy, and his wife's there beside him. It's hard to do that. That's what it means when it says they shall find no favor. So God hardened their hearts so that they would all come to battle with ferocity against Israel. Then it's a whole lot easier. When a guy's swinging a sword at you, it's pretty easy to cut his head off. That's what the verse means. God would harden their heart until he utterly destroyed them. I want to show you God's mind control. God hardened their hearts and made them obstinate so that they would come in battle so that Israel could destroy them. Before the Jordan River, after the Jordan River. Deuteronomy 2.30, Joshua 11.20. Now go to Genesis 35.5. And we're about to close. Genesis 35.5, I thank you for your kind attention. I'm sorry that I'm not a better speaker. I'm sorry that I'm so loud. I hope you love God's Word. I hope you want to live by God's Word. I hope you want to learn God's Word. I hope you want to go home and read more of it today. I hope you want to talk about it. I hope you want to obey it. And the Lord will show us more. More. We are nothing. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto Thyself. Great glory for Thy mercy and Thy truth's sake. Genesis 35, 5. And they journeyed, Jacob, with his little boys. He's got 11 boys, 13 years of age and under. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. This is mind control. These same people, a couple hundred years later, are going to pursue Israel with all their might to be destroyed. But when Jacob couldn't fight and just had little boys, the Lord turned their hearts the other way. The terror of the Lord came upon them so they didn't want to get near Jacob and his sons. Right. Look at Exodus thirty-four twenty-four. Exodus thirty-four twenty-four. You should be asking the question all day today, last night when you read, why can't people see 2 Thessalonians 2 and how simple it is? I'm telling you the answer right now. God blinds them. They've made a choice to have an American flag in their sanctuary. He's not going to let them have 2 Thessalonians 2. They want to put that stinking American flag in a church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't belong there. It belongs out on City Hall. It belongs in front of a marching army. It belongs in front of the Boy Scouts. They can put it in their public schools, but it doesn't belong in the church of Jesus Christ. How do we know it could be something that simple? Americanism and Christianity are not even distant cousins. 
The American flag belongs where the American flag belongs, but it doesn't belong in the church of Jesus Christ. We have a king, and it's not the president of the United States. We have a commander-in-chief, and it's not the president of the United States. Right. How do we know? So when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and you say to yourself, it's so simple, why doesn't everybody believe it? Why didn't Pharaoh stay in Egypt instead of going to the Red Sea? Why didn't Sihon stay at home and buy pizza for all the Israelites? I'm giving you the answer. Because he's in the business of mind control and he controls our minds and we want to ask him to control our minds for good. Amen. And to direct our minds into his word by his spirit. Exodus 34 and verse 24. I will look at verse 23. Get the context. Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Three times a year I want every male. I want you to come and appear before me in one place. Now that's dangerous for a nation when you get all their men in one place, away from their homes. Verse 24, For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Three times a year, all the nations around Israel went through mind control. It got changed. I no longer had any interest in my neighbor's farm. His beautiful animals, his livestock, all those fields that I would like to cut down and harvest myself, and that beautiful wife, oh yes, and he's got some beautiful daughters too. They had no interest in it three times a year so that those men could all leave and go worship God. Lord, turn our minds towards you. Turn our minds towards your word. Do not do this to us. Second Chronicles 17, last verse. Second Chronicles 17, verse 10. Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Israel, probably number four. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat. If you read 1 Kings 22 last night, I was going to send you a quiz to help your devotions last night. I hope you're able to read that long chapter and see several hints in it that Jehoshaphat had made a horrible mistake by even being in that chapter. Did you, were you able to see those? Did you see the little sentence that Jehoshaphat had made peace with the king of Israel? They were all Christians. They were cousins. They were all Israelites. But Jehoshaphat had made peace with Ahab. Jehoshaphat worshipped Jehovah. Ahab worshipped Baal. Jehoshaphat took his son and married him to Ahab's daughter. It's called affinity in Second Chronicles 18, and God hated it. And so when Jehoshaphat built himself a navy, what happened to the ships? His navy was sunk and broke. the ships were broken apart because he'd made peace with Ahab. And there was judgment upon Jehoshaphat and upon his family because he made peace with Ahab. His grandson, his son, and his son were cut out of the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8. He'll visit the iniquities of the fathers to the children of the third and the fourth generation. Three sons of Jehoshaphat cut out of Jesus Christ's line because he made peace with Ahab. That's why we don't make peace with heretics. Second Chronicles 17.10 The fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. The Lord can put the fear of the Lord into a natural man so that they will not want to fight his people. The Lord can put an unnatural, idiotic 
vengeance in a man's heart so that he will come against Israel so that he can be utterly destroyed. I hope you've seen the comparison. The Lord can do that to your benefactors. He can do that to somebody you work for. He can cause you to find favor in his sight, though he bought you on a slave market. I think of Potiphar. Or he can turn that person against you. He can do that to your benefactors. He can do that to your enemies. He can do that to you and me. So we humble ourselves before him. And we end with these simple words that we've heard a few times. But sanctify the Lord God himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be a sanctuary for each one of you that do that. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.